What a blessing now to take his word and to study it. Lord, help us now as we study that you would give us clarity from your word, that you would teach us, that our hearts would be receptive to what your spirit has to say. Lord, may your spirit now be the one that moves and speaks. May it not be human words, Lord, but your word that comes forth. We praise you for this Bible that we hold in our hands. We praise you for the word of God, which is accessible to us. And Lord, as we study it, we pray you give, give us wisdom and insight and discernment as to what it says and how it applies to our lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. We're going to study what is really the pivotal passage in this historical record because what happens in Acts 2 lays the groundwork for the advance of the gospel into the world and for the foundation of the church. This is the, the passage where it really all starts. And there's no question, uh, especially as we look at the apostles and how they were throughout the gospels, that the ability to do what they're going to do and the strength to be able to do it all came from the Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus had promised that in the passage we saw two weeks ago. He had promised it in chapter 1, verse 8, that they would receive power from on high, the Holy Spirit would come upon them, and they would have this job. But as the disciples wait, as they're waiting to receive that in these several days between the time of the ascension and the time of, the, of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, we have to assume that they don't really know what they're waiting for, or what it's going to look like, or how it's going to manifest itself, or or what's going to happen next. They know the fact of the Holy Spirit coming. They know the fact of their responsibility. But, but they don't really know what lies ahead. And I'm always struck as I study this passage. And really the whole book. At how little information these 120 people had. About what they would do and how they would do it. Especially in the face of such strong opposition. From so many people around them. They really didn't know what was going to happen. And as we've seen before, they have no experience, no training, no resources, and no real plan. Other than the fact that the Lord had said, here's the scope of your calling, and, and any uh, sufficiency, any power, any ability you're going to have is going to come from the Spirit. Now, they had to know that that job would be anything but easy, and and we have to believe that at this point, even though they're praying and they're confident and there's a newfound boldness in their hearts, we have to know that they're a little bit scared. They have to be a little bit intimidated. They have to be wondering what's going to happen. And I believe that's one of the reasons when we look back at chapter 1, verse 14, why they prayed so much. Because they were completely and only dependent on the sufficiency of the Lord for what to do next. I want you to hear that, and I want us to hear that. They were completely and only dependent on the sufficiency of God for their lives, and for their ministry, and for their church. And what an ideal position to be in. How many believe that this morning, that that's the most ideal position to be in when you're completely dependent on the Lord? We know that from trials, right? That, that the Lord says, trials are for your benefit, 
so that you'll learn to be complete. And yet we get into trials. What do we do? Ah, trial. No, no. Well, I guess I better pray and depend on the Lord, but I'm scared and I don't know what to do. And what's the answer going to be? And where's it going to come from? And, and we start to talk really fast in our brain, don't we? And God says, that's not the time to panic. That's the time when you're in the ideal situation where it's nothing but you and me, because that's what I love. Now, you would think, with all that's going on in the world this morning, and, and I believe after reading and hearing things this week, that it's far worse than we're being told. It's far worse than we imagine. And there's absolutely nobody this morning that has an answer for it. And then we see what's going on with this uh, forceful move by the Palestinians on Friday that they now want to be declared a state. And that's only going to become more volatile. There's not going to be a path to peace. And I, I would tell you this morning, I'm not speaking politically, I'm just speaking honestly. The president's going to force Israel to back down. Because we've fallen away from supporting Israel. And then with all the turmoil that's going on in the world, and despite all the new tactics to get people to attend church, overall attendance is lower than it's ever been. Society's more disaffected spiritually. You would think that with all that going on, that the church would have gotten the message that depending on the Lord and calling out to Him is the only answer. And yet, the church has done just the opposite. The church has become more independent in its thinking and more dependent on self-absorbed tactics and ways to, to try to figure out a different way when all that needs to happen is we need to start calling on the Lord again. Imagine if the apostles had reacted to their situation and to Jesus leaving and said, all right, we've got to figure it out. I know he said the Holy Spirit's coming and I know we're supposed to watch and pray, but come on, this is going to be a challenge here. We, we've got to get this together. They would not have been ready for the Spirit and they would not have submitted to him when he came. But listen now, our calling and commission hasn't changed from Acts 1, has it? The, the, the Lord hasn't said, well, this is a different time, and different times demand different measures. If I'm reading my Bible correctly, the, the calling and commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel has not changed one bit. And the need to depend on the Holy Spirit and to call on the Holy Spirit has not changed one bit. As believers, this is still what we're called to do. And because the calling hasn't changed, listen now, this is important, because the calling hasn't changed, the means to do the calling hasn't changed either. The power and ability and wisdom to do what God has called us to do has to come from the Holy Spirit. But we don't hear much about the Spirit in 2011, do we? His person and work has been misunderstood because so many people have misappropriated the Bible's instructions on spiritual gifts and that draws attention to them. Or he's been avoided and discounted in favor of cleverness and in favor of strategy and in favor of man's attempts to find a better way to do this and that both dishonors the Spirit and discredits the command to live by the Spirit. So let's come to this conclusion right at the start this morning. Again and again, as we study Acts, we have to come to the truth that ministry is only effective, listen now, in God's sight. Ministry is only effective in God's sight when it comes from people depending on the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and following the leading of the Spirit. 
God looks at our ministry this morning, this ministry, the ministry of every church that stands for the word of God, preaches the gospel in this town and in Kenosha and Oak Creek and Milwaukee and Chicago and everywhere else. God looks at our ministry and he says, the crucible for me, the testing point is, are you following my spirit that I gave to you to lead you and instruct you and empower you? If you're not, it's not pleasing to me. Now that's sobering. And Jesus told the apostles in Acts 1, this is how it's supposed to be. But they don't really get it till Acts 2. And once they do, their thinking and their ministry changes and never turns back. From the time when we're being told by the church growth movement, the emerging growth movement, and all the other movements that are going on, that, that it's another way, there is absolutely no arguing with the overwhelming effectiveness of the early church in reaching people for Jesus Christ. And they reached people for Christ because they walked by the Spirit and they stood for the Word of God. Now let's look at the birth of this. Let's look at the genesis of it here in Acts chapter 2. Start in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we, hear each, we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement with great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Stop right there. Let's stop in verse 12. We'll pick up 13 next week. Now, this section divides into two parts. We can look at it in the text. Verses 1 to 4 talk about the way the Spirit came and the evidence of Him coming. And then verses 5 to 12 talk about the effect of the Spirit's filling in their ministry. But before we look at each one, let's take a few minutes to, to very simply clarify the two ways, the two major ways that believers throughout the years have historically interpreted what happens in the first section, what happens in verse 1 to 4 as it relates to us. Because everything rests on Jesus' statement in chapter 1, verse 5, that they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is that the way the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2 is indicative of what all believers are supposed to experience and that the most clear manifestation of receiving the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. And they say that that's a separate and necessary event sometime after salvation. Now, the support for this is the fact that the disciples were already born again and already had the Holy Spirit, in a sense, before he 
manifested himself at Pentecost. So this event in Acts 2 was a special equipping to, to be bold and to do the work of ministry. And this belief system says that the spirit baptism initiates the believer to be able to use his spiritual gifts. Evidence of that is in Acts 2 and 8 and 10 and 19. And they teach that Christians should be asking the Lord specifically for this special baptism of the Spirit to have a more powerful witness of ministry. That's one school of thought. The second school of thought is that the way the Spirit came in Acts 2 was unique for the onset of the early church. And that this type of outward evidence, this type of, of baptism, so to speak, is either not in evidence at all today or, or is very limited. Now, support for this view is in the fact that in Acts 2, as well as one other instance at Cornelius' house in Acts 10 and 11, which we'll look at down the road, they're the only biblical instances of this type of event. Other than that, it's never repeated in the New Testament. And that's including at the end of Acts 2, which we'll look at in two weeks, where thousands of people were saved. Also for this, I know this is like, oh, what are you talking about? Just stay with me, okay? This is important. Also with this is the fact that Paul doesn't teach about tongues being evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he lists tongues, separate type, but stay with me, as one of the gifts of the Spirit, and he warns about overemphasis on any of the gifts and says in Ephesians 4 that there is one baptism referring to water baptism. Now, that's a lot of information to digest. So the school of thought, number one, is that there's a special baptism of the Holy Spirit manifested by tongues. School, number thought, uh, school of thought number two is that this is particular to the early church and it's evidence of the coming of the Holy Spirit in a manifest way for the apostles at this time. Now, we can debate this for hours and we can quote verses and we can make persuasive cases for each viewpoint. And we have people in this room that are in one side, well, I don't want to use the word, one camp or the other, one belief or the other. And each of those uh, groups loves the Lord. Each of those groups desires for the Holy Spirit to fill them. Each of those groups wants to see God magnified. But here's what I want to say. I want to be careful this morning that we don't make this section of Scripture a referendum on tongues or a referendum on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because that's what Paul warns about in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, he says, instead of seeking particular gifts, listen now, instead of seeking particular gifts, we need to just be seeking the Holy Spirit. And there's so many times an overemphasis on one side or the other. Well, the gifts have to be this way and they have to manifest and this, this, this. And then there's another group that says, no, we don't want to talk about the gifts. We don't want to say anything about what the Holy Spirit might do because that's, that's weird. Listen, don't get caught in either polar extreme. Because the point of the spiritual gifts is not the spiritual gifts, right? The point of the spiritual gifts is the Holy Spirit. We can't concentrate on the method as much as we focus on the purpose of the method because the enemy wants to distract us this way. He wants us to disagree and to argue. And the last thing he wants us to do is say the purpose of the gifts was to draw people to faith in Christ. 
Why does God give you the gift he gives you? Whether it's teaching, whether it's wisdom, whether it's hospitality, whether it's prayer, whatever it may be. Why did he give you those gifts? He gives you those gifts so you will draw people to Christ. It's laughable to me sometimes that my job in life is to stand before people and talk. And many times I say to myself, who am I? Why, why would God allow me to do that? Why would you come on a Sunday morning and sit there and, and listen as I talk for 45 minutes about the Word of God? Why would you do that? I mean, I, I deal with this insecurity all the time. You need to pray for me, okay? But the only reason I can come to is, this is not natural for me, and yet this is what God called me to. Not for the purpose of saying, wow, look at me. I can stand before you and hold your attention. The purpose of this and the purpose of your gifts is what? It's to praise the Lord and to draw people to Christ. And if you're not using your gifts that way, then you're misusing your gifts. The apostles were given this gift so that the gospel could be presented. And what a time to do it. Look at the text. They're in Jerusalem. Less than two months before, the city had collectively killed Jesus. Less than two months before, there were turmoil and strife and yelling and anger and crucifixion and, and all kinds of mess. Now, it's less than two months later, and there are Jews from all throughout the world gathered for Pentecost. And according to verse 1, the 120 are all together in one place. They've been continually praying with one mind. We can safely assume that they're still calling on the Lord and they're waiting on him. Don't miss the spiritual principle there. Collectively, they're gathered, calling on the name of the Lord. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes when we are unified in our desire to call on the name of the Lord and to seek his leading. That's when God says, I'll pour out my spirit on you. Not mystical, not crazy, not weird, not dancing and laughing and being goofy. Listen, I'm not talking about that this morning. That's not the Bible. What I am talking about, and this is biblical, this is, don't get scared now, we're not, we're not Pentecostal church this morning, not there's anything wrong with Pentecostal church. I have plenty of friends at Pentecostal. But that's not the purpose. Don't get caught up in the distraction. The purpose is that when we call on the Lord, God's Spirit moves. And they are calling on the Lord. And that's when the Spirit comes. Look at it, verses 1 and 2. That's when the Spirit comes to fill them and empower them to do exactly what Jesus said you're going to go do. You're going to take the gospel to the world. And what better place to begin the process of taking the gospel to the world than in the place where the whole world at this time was represented. See, Pentecost was a very meaningful time for the Jews. Pentecost was a feast commemorating when God gave the Ten Commandments to the Jews in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And it had a connection to the Jewish holiday of Shavuot. Shavuot, or I'm probably not pronouncing that right because I'm not Hebrew, but go with me, right? Let's all say Shavuot. One, two, three. Good. See, you can do it. That word that we can't pronounce was at the end of the season of harvest. 
Harvest lasted seven weeks. It started with the harvesting of barley during Passover, and it ended with the gathering of wheat at Shavuot. Now, this was a great time of joy and celebration throughout all Israel, and people looked back at the giving of the law, and they looked toward the present provision of the Lord. So it's symbolically significant that the Holy Spirit comes during Pentecost because Jesus has just come and fulfilled that law. They were given the law at Sinai, handed to Moses. He came down. The people were in anarchy and rebellion. People died. There was the judgment of God. They got a new law and new tablets, and they took it, and that's what they lived by. And throughout the Old Testament, people didn't follow it. But every year, they think back to when Moses gave the law. Now that law has been fulfilled through Christ. He's introduced a new covenant through his blood. And now there's a present and eternal provision that far outweighs anything material. So at that time of Pentecost, the Spirit's now been given to them, listen now, for a new harvest. Not barley and wheat, but now there's going to be harvest of people. And the gospel's going to advance throughout the world, and it's going to start with these Jews that are gathered in Jerusalem, but it's going to quickly spread to the Gentiles because as these Jews go back to their nations, which we'll talk about in a minute, they're going to start talking about this Jesus. And people are going to hear, and conversations are going to happen. And then the apostles themselves are going to start to spread out. And Paul's going to go out with Timothy and Barnabas and Silas, and he's going to go up into Asia Minor, and the gospel's going to spread like wildfire. It all starts here at Pentecost. Look at how it happens, verses 2 and 4. When they were together, there's a sound like a violent rushing wind, and it fills the whole house. See, wind is the symbol of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. And here, this sound, just imagine it. It would have been like a tornado sound. You've seen on the Weather Channel or news programs are special. You've seen these people that are crazy. They chase tornadoes. I don't know what's wrong with them. They need a life. But good for them. They're scientists. I give them credit. But, but they're out there chasing tornadoes. And you see sometimes that they get a little too close. And they'll hide under a bridge, which is where I want to be during a tornado, under a bridge out in the open. But they'll hide under a bridge and you watch it pass by. And you'll hear, I just can't even replicate the sound. How, how strong and powerful and violent it was. Well, that's the sound here. The Bible uses the word violent. So this is not just a nice soft breeze out of a fan and, oh, the Holy Spirit's here. This is a sound of a violent rushing wind. There's not an actual wind, it's just the sound of it. And this sound fills the whole house. And, and this would have put them in a very serious frame of mind about what was happening, about the coming and the power of the Holy Spirit and the commission to do ministry. See, when the Spirit has been misunderstood in our generations, He's been very trivialized. He's, he's been marginalized and he's treated as something ethereal and odd. In fact, many of the writings that I read about the Holy Spirit, it refers to him as it. How many know the Holy Spirit's not an it? That speaker's an it. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. He is one with Christ, one with the Father. I can't explain it. Nobody else can. 
one God, three persons. He's the third person. And Jesus said he is the spirit of Christ. So he's not just some strange, weird being. We talked about this last spring. He's not just some odd thing that's kind of weird and ethereal and we don't really want to talk. He is the spirit of Christ. And when we are in his presence, it should humble us. And it should cause us to have the fear of God before our eyes, as Romans 3 says. Romans 3 says that fear is lacking in those who resist the Lord. So let's make sure that we never become in a place where we're not in fear of the Holy Spirit. This is a sound of a violent, rushing wind. Because the work of the Holy Spirit is personal. And at times, it is spiritually violent because he has to break up sin. Listen, God is a God of grace and he is a God of mercy and he is a God of love and he is a God of forgiveness. But the Holy Spirit also has the job of convicting us of sin. He also has the job of breaking us of self. He also has the job of taking apart what is unnecessary and what is unholy and removing it from our lives. It's a difficult, refining work. And he burns up, listen, this is hard. He burns up what is unrighteous and he breaks the hardness and he takes out what is hindering holiness in our lives. And then he sparks a spiritual passion and a zeal in our hearts and minds so that we love the Lord more deeply and follow him more faithfully. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Don't quench it. Don't pour water on it. Don't say, I don't want it. Let the Spirit do that work of refining in our lives. And that's what we see in the second symbol of the calling. Look at verse 3. Not only do we have the sound of wind, but now fire rests on each of the apostles. This tongue of fire only appears here in Scripture. It's a verification of what Jesus had promised. And while it isn't completely clear from the text, it seems that the flame maybe was over their heads. It just says in the passage here in verse 3 that it rested on each of them. So the, the interpretation throughout the years has been that it was over their heads. But we don't know. Maybe it was right here. We don't have clear evidence. But that tongue of fire rested on them somehow. And this is an important symbol of what the Holy Spirit was doing. Their minds and hearts were now to be led and even controlled by the Spirit. And the words of testimony were supposed to come from the Spirit. And then after the wind sound and the fire, look at the next part, the Spirit actually fills them. And the clear evidence of that was that they were able to speak in a different language than they knew. It's very important to see why they were given that particular ability. It was not so that they would be validated as having received something for themselves. It was not so people would notice them. It was not so people would say, wow, you guys are really special. The tongues of fire represented his presence and the tongues of language represented his power because when the Spirit gives us the word of God, 
we are to share it. So he gives them the evidence of his presence. He gives them the power and he gives them the ability. And the singular purpose, this is important now, verse 4, the singular purpose for them to speak in different languages in Acts 2 was so that the gospel would be heard by each nation. Jesus said, go into the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the world. And here, right now, in Acts 2, 4 in Jerusalem, pretty much the whole world was represented in every direction. In fact, the nations that are listed here in verses 9 to 11 embody the world map at the time. To the north, Judea in Israel, Cappadocia, Pontus, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. All of those are in what's now modern-day Turkey. Then to the northwest, be this way, Crete and Rome. To the direct west, Cyrene. To the southwest, Libya. To the south, Egypt. To the southeast, the Parthians in what's now Iran. To the east, the Elamites and Mesopotamians in modern-day Iraq and all of Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, China. To the northeast, the Medes, in what's now Aramea and, uh, and uh, Azerbaijan. And then if that wasn't enough, in verse 11 it says, and all the Arabs. So whatever area wasn't covered, they filled it in. It's like a big clock. North, northeast, excuse, north, northwest, west, southwest, south, southeast, east, northeast. The whole world, in verses 9 to 11, is represented. And Jerusalem is right in the center. And four times in the text, between verses 5 and 12, it says that these people heard in their own language what the Spirit-empowered apostles were saying. Isn't it amazing how God worked to already fulfill the Great Commission in them when they're timid and scared and wondering what comes next and calling on the Lord, God says, let me bring everybody together and you'll be right in the center. And now I'm going to give you languages that will help them, everybody on the clock, they'll help them understand the gospel. Before you ever take the first missionary journey, before you ever start to branch out as apostles, I'll start it right here. And notice back in verse 6, look at it that when these people in the city heard this loud sound of wind and they heard 120 people speaking boldly in their national languages, it says that the crowd came together. In other words, people searched for the truth. Do you know this morning that people are searching for truth? They want answers. They're scared. They're frightened. They're worried. And man tries to put on a great facade and say, no, it's no big deal. And the economic crisis, we'll pull out of it. We just got, got to get the right people in office and, and do the right thing. And maybe the Fed will solve it. And, and, and somehow the home rates will rise. And, and all that Israel and Palestinian mess, it'll solve itself. People are in denial this morning. It's not going to solve itself. Humans aren't going to be able to figure this out, or they would have by now. The only answer 
is the truth of the gospel. One of the most distinctive purposes for our spiritual gifts as believers is that they're used to stir people's hearts for the gospel. There's an unmistakable connection between calling and responsibility. The gifts the Lord gives us are so that we can effectively carry out the responsibility he's given us. What are the two greatest commandments? You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Spiritual gifts are given to make people aware of the gospel so that they would love the Lord God. And spiritual gifts are given so we would serve one another, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. See, God's plan all works together. In fulfilling the great commandments, we're fulfilling the great commission. If you really love the Lord, you want other people to love him. If you really love the Lord, you want to tell people about him because you know how blessed they're going to be and how encouraged they're going to be when their life gets transformed by God's grace. And then you're going to want to serve other people like we've seen in such amazing ways from this church as you've come to serve without a single word of complaint. We had children there, five, six, seven years old, for six hours on Tuesday, not a word of complaint. I'm telling you, that encouraged me. People on their knees, scrubbing floors, doing things you wouldn't want to do in the normal course of a day. Why? Because we love the Lord and we love to serve one another. And we know that ministry center is going to be a place where we can reach neighborhoods and people for the gospel. That's the purpose of the gifts. That's why God did it. Spirit didn't give them languages so they'd be seen. Spiritual gifts are never for our benefit and our glory. That's an offense to God. Spiritual gifts are given for the edification of the body so we'd be built up and so the gospel would advance. If your gifts aren't being used for that, I'll say it again, they're being misused. Why give tongues? Why let them speak in different languages? Why would these Galilean fishermen be able to speak the language that the Elamites would understand. We'll look back at the text. These people needed to hear the gospel. But wait, the text says that they were devout religious people, but apparently their religion wasn't based on Christ. So the phrase at the end of verse 4 says that the Spirit gave them utterance. Very interesting word in the Greek language. It doesn't mean unintelligible Words, it doesn't mean noises, it doesn't mean something that doesn't make sense. The Greek word there means words with spiritual substance and weight. In other words, they're speaking the words of life. They're speaking about Jesus Christ and the need for salvation through him because that is what draws people's hearts to God. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. What will draw people to God as they search for answers is not talking about their wants and needs, and it's not talking about how they can be happier people, and it's not trying to be cute and relevant and similar to the world so they'll somehow be interested. If anybody can show me that in Acts 2, I will apologize. It is not about that. Look at verse 12. People from all nations came to hear the truth and they were amazed. Why? Because they heard the apostles speaking about the mighty deeds of God. 
Oh, I'm telling you this morning, if you go out and tell people about the mighty deeds of God in your life, they will not turn away. They will be drawn. They will pull toward the Lord. They will say, well, tell me more. How do you know what's happened? Why are you different? How did the Lord work in your life? I want to know more. People are hungry for information this morning. Why does everybody keep spending thousands of dollars on technology? And I've got to know this and be always... I, I crack up watching people. They can never be two seconds without checking their, their phone. They want some kind of information this morning that's going to make them feel hopeful. And there isn't any. I'm not a pessimist. I'm an optimist. But I'm telling you this morning, there isn't any. And we keep clipping website after website after website, hoping there's going to be something there that's going to make us happy. The only thing that's going to make us happy is the mighty deeds of God. So the people come and they say, what does it mean? What's going on here? What's happening? Why do we hear this word about Jesus in our language? Listen, this is the powerful effect of speaking about the Lord and sharing the gospel. It stokes interest in people's hearts and minds, and it causes them to desire to know more. We've got to be cautious because the movement of Christianity is not to be bold and upfront. It's to do an end around and talk about Love and grace and nothing hard because we don't want people to have to think about their sin because that might turn them off. I'm not saying we need to beat people over the head. I'm not saying we have to, oh, sin, sin, sin. Listen, that's, that's not the gospel either. The only reason why we need the love and grace and forgiveness of God is what? Because we're sinners. And the only reason God gave us his love and grace and forgiveness is because our sin puts us in an untenable situation. So we have to talk about the reality of man's lostness in order to be talking about the wonderful love and amazing grace of God. When we look at Peter's sermon next week, we're not going to see him dancing around the truth. And here's the interesting thing. Peter is bold, and he says... You guys put Christ to death, and you're accountable for it. And do you know what the response is? The response is not that people walk away grumbling or start to stone him. The response when Peter says, you put Christ to death and you're accountable, is that 3,000 people get saved. We don't have to hide the truth. We have to relearn a trust in the sufficiency of the gospel and rely on the Holy Spirit to open people's hearts and minds and make them receptive to the gospel. And I believe that we will be absolutely amazed that people will not, by and large, say to us, you are a crazy nut who believes something that's far-fetched that happens thousands of years ago, and it has no meaning to me. I honestly believe that's a lie that the devil's told us, and I believe we should deny that lie and we should realize that when we speak the gospel, you know what people are going to say? What does it mean? Tell me more. I want to know. You talk about the mighty deeds of God that have taken place in your life. Tell me more. I want to know more. What's it mean? Listen, don't nuance the truth. 
You don't have to nuance it to be convincing. The truth is awesome and persuasive. And the Holy Spirit changed lives. So we need to get back to a simplicity in how we serve the Lord and stand for Him. First and foremost, living in holiness and walking by faith. And yielded to His Spirit, constantly devoting ourselves to prayer, seeking Him, being ready and available when He calls, and then when He does, willing to talk about the amazing work of God in our lives. doesn't matter if God lets you speak French or Lithuanian or Creole or just plain English. If you talk about His work, people will get saved. Don't focus on the method. Focus on the goal that people would hunger and thirst after righteousness. Oh, how many know this morning that's what our world needs? Not economic answers. Come on, our world needs a spiritual revival. And we've been given that assignment. You and me, this church, has been given that assignment in whatever direction he takes us, north, south, east, west, doesn't matter. Whatever vehicle he wants to use, doesn't matter. He has supplied us with His Spirit to do His work. Let's do it. Let's bow our heads and ask Him for strength and confidence as we take on that calling. Lord, this morning, we honor and praise You. We look to You to be our strength and our support as we do this challenging work of ministry. Lord, for many of us, it's intimidating and scary, just as the apostles felt in Acts 1. We don't know how to do it. We don't know what to say. We don't know who will listen. We're being told that the world doesn't care. But Lord, clearly we see from your word when we're calling on the name of the Lord and when we're filled by your spirit and we are doing the work that you've called us to do that it will be undeniably effective so Lord help us to keep our focus on what's important to not be distracted by man's philosophy by all the things that want to captivate our mind during the day. Lord, help us to look out on that harvest and see that the fields are white. They're ready to be reaped. Lord, may we be the laborers that would go out and do that great work that you've given to us. Father, we pray that your spirit would be so strong in our lives that you would fill us to overflowing you'd empty us of self and of sin you'd empty us of fear and anxiety you'd empty us of busyness and distraction that you would fill us with your spirit Lord that you would fill this church with your spirit and as you lead us and guide us and give us wisdom for how we can reach this community for Christ how we can minister to our neighborhoods, how we can call people to the gospel, how we can share our faith. Lord, that you would give us wisdom and discernment as to what would be the best use of our time so that people would come to know your love and your mercy.
Lord, what a great calling you've given us and what a great sufficiency we have. Keep us humble, Lord. Keep us focused on what needs to happen. And Lord, as we go forth, we will praise you and we will honor you and we will talk about your mighty works. Thank you, Lord, for this great calling. Give us strength now. Keep us from discouragement. Keep us from doubt because we know the enemy is going to go after those things. Give us boldness and confidence in the days ahead. And Father, may we see a great harvest before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.